Well, I hope you're having a good day. Welcome all of you that are watching online. Get your Bibles out. Let's open to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 will be on page 1348. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, just grab that pew Bible in front of you. Philippians 1. We started last week uh, our series through the book of Philippians, and we'll go verse by verse and section by section all the way into the holiday season through the book of Philippians, which has so much to teach us and encourage us and help us. What a blessing this will be to us, especially in this uh, particular time and place and season that we find ourselves in. Such a relevant place in Scripture for our hearts. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll see what God has to say to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of your perfect and errant word. We thank you for the joy of being together. We thank you for the pleasure and power we sense when we are in your presence as your people. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive, that your word might penetrate our hearts and make us more like you, that you'll be glorified and honored through this time that we spend together. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we started last week by asking a couple of questions. The first question was, what if I told you that someone else is more concerned about your joy than you could ever be. That sort of got our wheels turning. Then I asked the second question, what if that person has been planning your joy since before your birth? And the question that begs to be answered is, if this is true, which it is, Why is joy so elusive? Why is is real joy so elusive? Not just in our world, but in the Lord's church and amongst even God's people. Why is that? So we're going to talk about that this morning. Uh, I want us to kind of get our framework straight as we move into this passage. I want you to think about the storyline of Scripture in the context of a God of fullness who is continually intersecting with a people of emptiness. So from the very beginning, God creates fullness out of nothing. There's emptiness, God creates, and there's fullness. And then in the fullness, Adam and Eve chose to be dissatisfied in the fullness and to pursue trying to be like God in their own power and strength. And so from that point forward, it's been this never-ending process of people empty, all people empty, all people empty, seeking to fill that emptiness. Now, I want you to realize with me that the emptiness that's within us is on purpose, that God created us that way. He intended for us to have emptiness. That's by design. And so we shouldn't uh, try to push away from that or try to uh, see a lot of times if we were having a conversation, uh, we would, you know, sort of push away from the reality that we feel empty because that would signify there's a problem when, in fact, no, to be human is to feel emptiness. And so what God presses us to think about is what do we fill that void with? Now, this same God who is full, so you think he creates fullness out of nothing and then Uh, Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus shows up full of grace and truth. And yet there's a world filled with emptiness. And it's this never-ending sort of dance, this back and forth of 
God weaving through human history and, and orchestrating our lives? And how does he bring about so much of the things that he accomplishes? So, for example, the God's people, the Israelites, find themselves in the emptiness of captivity in Egypt. And so God rescues them. He comes to them and rescues them through the, all of these uh, supernatural events. But as they're leaving Egypt, they, they go up to the edge of the Red Sea, which is by design. And then in this moment of sort of perplexity of, wait a minute, God just did all those things and now we're here and we're going to die because there's nowhere to go. God puts them into this position of hopelessness so that he can then part the waters and lead them through on dry ground. That he orchestrated that. See, they could have just walked up. Listen, if you think about all that God had done just prior to that, they could have just walked up to the edge of the Red Sea and there would have already been anything he wanted to. Nobody would have been shocked by that. What shocked them was the perplexity of, now, wait a minute, what just happened? Then throughout the Bible, just pick a Bible character. I mean, Joseph, for example, his whole life is a sequence of him finding himself in one empty situation after another, one perplexity after another. And God then shows how he orchestrated all of that to use Joseph's life to rescue his people from famine. But in the midst of it, Joseph can't see that. Jesus comes on the scene to rescue empty people. He's full of grace and truth. And how does he rescue us? Does he not orchestrate the events of our life to put us in a position so that we'll recognize our need for him? You see, in the moment that we recognize our need for him, our need for him is not greater than it's ever been. It's the same as it's always been. But it's in the orchestration of the events that comes the realization of the emptiness that then turns us to answering the question, well, how will we fill it? So if you have your listening guide, the first thing I want you to see this morning is that the gospel first advances in us. It advances first in us. You see, when we encounter the gospel, the first thing that happens is that the gospel works in us. So the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi. He loves this church. He planted this church. And he is in quarantine on house arrest and shackles, shackled to a Roman soldier. And when you think about Paul, you... You could easily conclude that no one has ever suffered more than Paul except for the Lord Jesus. I mean, the Apostle Paul has been stoned almost to death. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. His life has been one fiasco after another, one perplexity after another. He continually finds himself in these sort of Red Sea moments, in the perplexity of what in the world do I do now? How do I... Why am I here? How do I get through this? What's, the, what's going on here? When we get to this point in Paul's life, he's, he, he hasn't just been imprisoned. He's been imprisoned for quite some time, at least two years when he pens this. So we're talking about a long time. Imagine two years shackled to a Roman soldier. Now, I want us to, to put ourselves in the passage to try to relate honestly to what we're really talking about. We're talking about 
a man shackled to another man for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That means there's no privacy ever. Think of all the difficult uncomfortable things that Paul was dealing with and had been dealing with and had no idea how long he would continue to deal with them when he pens these words. Look at verse 12. But I want you to know, he says, brethren, family, brothers, sisters, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now listen, you can't just run past that. you got to really stop and think to yourself. you got to, I mean, I don't know about you. I only know about me. Well, I do know some about you, but mostly I know about me. We'll get to you in a minute. We'll start with me. Um, I mean, I, I didn't do good with quarantine in this context. I'm pretty sure I complained a whole lot more than I should have. But chained to another man for 24 hours a day, When I wrote you a letter after two years of that, I want you to know how terrible that is. And I want you to know how bad I want to get out of there. And I want you to know all the things that are happening to me so that you'll leverage everything that you possibly can to fix my situation. And I'm pretty confident that you do the same thing. Paul doesn't. You know what Paul does? He sums all of his misery up in the things which have happened to me. He doesn't go into detail. He doesn't complain. Now, now what is happening here? What? Is Paul just in denial? Is he, is he just losing his mind? Has he been in captivity so long he's gone insane? What Paul's doing is Paul's not looking at his chains. He's looking through his chains. What so oftentimes happens is we fixate on the very thing that is making us uncomfortable, the thing that is persecuting us, the thing that is, is uh, discouraging us, the thing that is wounding us or hurting us or causing us to be fearful or anxious or whatever it is. We fixate on this thing and we want to get this thing out of our life and out of our way and so that it will stop doing the things that it's doing. What Paul does is he uses the very thing that is Driving him crazy, he uses that thing as a lens through which he looks to see how the gospel might be advanced. What becomes painfully apparent here is the reality that Paul has very different priorities. Than we do. You see, Paul is not in any way downplaying the reality of his suffering. Oh, it stinks. I mean, literally and figuratively. It's, it's terrible. It's deplorable. It's miserable. It's everything you can imagine. It is. He's not spinning it around as if it's not all of those things. But all of those things aren't the issue. 
All of those things are true and all of those things are real, but all of those things aren't preeminent. What's preeminent to Paul is the gospel. It's just the preeminent priority of his life. And that's what, that's what God wants to say to us in the first chapter of the book of Philippians as we think about our lifelong pursuit of joy. You know, how are you handling the stresses and the trials of COVID-19? How are you dealing with the, the, the pressures of uh, the discord in our, in our nation and amongst our people? And how are you, how are you processing all the, the, the seemingly you know, insecurities and unpredictable things that uh, seem to be going on around us? How, how is that affecting you? How are you dealing with it? Are you looking at your problems? See, those are, those are the global problems that we're all sort of existing in. And then in that pool, each of us have our own unique individual and personal situations. See, some of you in the midst of all of this, you're dealing with the pressure of physical challenges. You're not well. You don't know if you're going to get well. You don't know what the implications are of your health situation. Some of you are dealing with relational issues. Your marriage is struggling and on the rope. Some of you are dealing with parenting issues and, and stresses and trials that come with that. Some of you have great vocational challenges that you're in the midst of or financial struggles that you're in the midst of. And so in the midst of all the challenges that we're all in, there's these other unique scenarios and situations that have dropped into your life that you're dealing with simultaneously. Paul's no different. He's writing to his brothers and sisters who are facing challenges in Philippi. All the Christians in the first century at this time are facing certain challenges together. And then there's challenges that are unique geographically to certain areas. And then there's challenges that are existing within each individual person or family or group or whatever the case may be, just as it is this morning. And so I ask again, what is the object of your attention right now? What is it that's the lens through which you tend to look? That you tend to fixate on? What are you passionate about? What is the pursuit of your life? You see, I thought a lot about our conversation last week, and I feel strongly that we didn't make the connection that we needed to make. I feel strongly that there was many of you that left last week with an idea in your head of what a gospel-first relationship is. That's not what the Scripture's talking about. And so let me use a different tack this morning. What I believe the Bible is showing us in the first chapter of Philippians is that the Apostle Paul is obsessed with the gospel. He is obsessed with it. And what I know to be true about our culture is that we believe that any obsession is unhealthy and that what we strive to do is to live an obsession-free life, that we would keep everything in balance, which is a complete lie. It's a complete lie. Because the reality is, is that every single person in this room right now is obsessed with something. Every one of us is obsessed with something 
And it's all by design. You're obsessed with something. There is something that is the passion of your life. There is something that is the lens through which you see all of life. There is one pinnacle, pivotal thing that is at the top of your priorities. See, maybe it's your job. Maybe you are obsessed with having a good job or getting a good job or keeping a good job or climbing the corporate ladder. Maybe you're obsessed with having a good retirement. Maybe you're obsessed with getting married. Maybe you're obsessed with staying married. Maybe you're obsessed with having kids. All of these things are good things. But they're not things you should be obsessed with. They're good. But they're not things that you should be obsessed with. They're insignificant compared to what you ought to be. In other words, they don't have the significance needed to fit the mold of obsession. They're too short-term. They're too temporal. They're too vulnerable. You see, whatever you give your life to, I want you to think about this. Whatever it is that you give your life to, it must be something that's so firm and solid that if everything else in your life burns down, the fact that that one thing remains, you'll still be able to have joy. And what is it that you can be obsessed with that no matter what happens, if you lose your job, if the stock market crashes, if your spouse tells you they don't love you anymore, if your children walk away from you, if all your comfort is gone, what's the only thing that won't disappoint you, that won't leave you, it's the gospel. It's how God made you. He made us to be obsessed with the good news. And that's not a bad thing. That is a great thing. You see, when we're obsessed with the gospel, think of what we have. Think of what you have in the gospel. Think of what happens when your life revolves around the reality that you have a God who suffered for you. You have a God who died for you. Think about how everything you just sung is true, and it feels so good to sing it. But there's emptiness. There's something's not right. Something's not Sufficient, And what it is is that it's not in its rightful place. I want you to hear me this morning, brothers and sisters. In the midst of all the chaos in this world, God is with His people. He's with His children. He's with His sons and daughters. He's with you in the midst of this chaos. He hasn't left you. He's with you. He's right beside you. And he's the God who overcame sin and death. He's the God who has proven himself to be the one and only one that you can count on in your moment of greatest need. You see... As we think about gospel obsession, we have to be clear that we're, we're understanding what the Bible's talking about as it correlates to the words that I use, the words that we use. So, for example, I want us to lay down this definition so that we know what we're talking about. 
When I talk about a disciple, what I'm talking about, what the Bible's talking about is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. Do you know it's impossible to follow someone and not become like them? It's impossible. Now, you see, you know this from the very earliest points of development because everyone in the room that has children knows that you can tell when your kids have been around certain people. They come home and you're like, what? I, I know who you've been around. Just a, just a few hours with someone can alter them in a way that you as a mom and a dad immediately know they've been around somebody. You know why? Is it a bad thing? It's an intended thing. It's a purposeful thing. It's supposed to be that way. God made you that way. That's how he made us. He made us so that, the, that whatever we follow, we become like. That's how he made you. You see, what we think is, we, we think, well, something's wrong. What we want to do is raise kids that are so strong that whoever they're around, they don't get influenced by well, you're going to have to change the very structure and nature of their DNA. That's not how God made us. He made me and you to become like whatever we follow. And then he gave us everything we need to know to follow him. That's what he did. How many times in the Bible do you see the, the positive encouragement to follow me as I follow Christ? The negative warning that he who walks with fools will be destroyed? All throughout the Bible, you see this continually spoken to us that whatever we follow, whoever we follow, will begin to look like. So what happens first with the gospel is that it, it works in us. Then secondly, the gospel advances to others through us. It advances to others through us. Now, look at verse 13. Paul goes on and he says, So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Now, what Paul's talking about is the imperial guard. This would have been roughly 9,000 sort of, you know, Navy SEALs, if you will, that Caesar had hand chosen. They're sort of his bodyguards. And these 9,000 men would have been the elite warriors. They got double honor, double pay. They, they had a lot of influence and power in Rome especially, but amongst any Roman province. They were, they, there was a lot of perks to being in the imperial guard. But there was one downfall. That if you were in the imperial guard, one of your duties was that you would have to take your turn being chained to an imperial prisoner. Because Caesar wasn't going to let anybody escape. He wasn't going to let anybody get away. And so one of the duties that he assigned, and no doubt the worst of all the duties for the imperial guard was they had to take their rotation to be chained to a prisoner. And it was something that they just had to do. And so when they got chained to Paul, how do you think that went? Now, now I, want you to, I want you to just think about, I don't want you to think about the Apostle Paul, Super Paul, the Great Paul. I just want you to think about, first of all, what's true of all of us. I mean, if, if someone was chained to you, every four hours or so, somebody else came in, switched the shackles,
Here's some things I know that would be true. First of all, I know this. You can't help but talk about that which you love. You can't help it. See, some of you, all you ever talk about is yourself. That's all you talk about. Like you walk away from a conversation because the other person's thinking this. So don't you realize like, wow, the whole time we talked, all I did was talk about myself. And some of you, all you talk about is your kids. Like we love your kids, but we have kids too. Do you know that? Do you know we have kids? And all you ever talk about is your kids as if we don't have kids. See, now, right now, if you're thinking to yourself, you know, I wonder if he's talking. Yes, I'm talking about you. That is you. Stop talking about your kids so much. Some of you, all you talk about is sports. You just try to derail every conversation to sports. It's just your go-to thing. That's what you talk about all the time. You can't help but talk about what you love. It's going to come out of you. Now, Paul can't go anywhere. He's lost all of his freedom. Everything in his life is pointing the wrong direction. It's going wrong. All of his comfort, all of his freedom, all of his relationships, he's been, you know, pulled away from. Everything's going in the wrong direction except for one thing. See, Paul wouldn't say, here I am, chained to a Roman soldier. Paul would say, here I am, these Roman soldiers are chained to me. That's what Paul would say. Paul would say, So let me get this straight. Every couple of hours, I get a new witnessing opportunity. Or can you imagine how this went down? Like there'd be times where somebody that Paul talked to a day or two earlier, and they'd come back for their second tour of duty, and Paul would be like, now where did we leave off? You know, as he's going, clamp it on. Come on, clamp yours. Lock it. You got it locked good. Okay, now where did we leave off? You know, like the new guy comes in, and Paul's just kind of chilling out, being cool for a second. And he's like, so uh, what'd you do to get in here? Paul's like, well, I'm glad you asked that. And day after day after day, conversation after conversation after conversation, and I want, you to, I want you to flip over to chapter 4, to the very end of Philippians. And I want you to see something. Because you'll forget this, because won't, I won't be preaching on this till like, you know, Christmas. Look at chapter 4. Look at verse 21. As Paul is sort of ending this whole thing, he says, Now greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me greet you all the saints greet you but especially those who are of Caesar's household huh wonder how that happened now you got to remember Paul already on his way to Rome has shared the gospel with two governors with multiple high-ranking government officials now, the gospel has infiltrated into the household of Caesar. How? Through all these Roman guards that have been converted to Christ because of his imprisonment. Now, just like the Red Sea wouldn't have been my option or your option or anything that happened to Joseph's life, or none of us would have came up with the story of redemption in the life of Christ, or any other thing, we wouldn't have came up with what God did in my life or your life. But God wants the gospel to get to Caesar's household because he wants the gospel to get everywhere. Now, how's he going to get it to Caesar's household? He's going to put his person in a moment of perplexity. He's going to put his mouthpiece in a place where 
there's an opportunity. In what appears to be an obstruction. I mean, how is... I mean, how is God going to get the gospel to the household of Caesar? What's your plan? This is God's plan. He's going to use perplexity. He's going to use difficulty. Does the gospel look like it's hindered here? Now, if you're, if you're looking through any other lens but a gospel lens, it looks like a catastrophe is what it looks like. It looks like, save me, call the U.N., get the president on the phone, send the FBI, I'm wrongly incarcerated, i got to get out of here, this can't be right, and how have I been here for two years and nobody's interceded on my behalf? What's going on here? Send me money, send me help, get me a lawyer, do something, call the media. No. Mm -mm. Paul says, all this has served just to advance the gospel. You see, we we don't know how all this is going to work out, do we? No, I mean, I understand you all have your opinion. Trust me, I know all about that. Like all of you have your opinion. You all know how the election's going to turn out. You all know, and being, everybody is an infectious disease doctor now. You all have, your, have all the coronavirus precautions figured out, what to do, what not to do, what's true, what's not true. Everybody. You got it all figured out, but the truth is, you know what you know? Nothing. You don't know anything. You know zero. Nothing. You don't know anything about it. Nothing. Neither does all the people that say they do for real. They don't know either. We don't know how it's going to turn out. Listen, we don't know how long this is going to go on. We don't know when things level out, if they ever going to level out. If they do, what will that look like? We don't know. We don't know. We don't know what the state of our country will be. We don't know what race relations will look like. We don't know what our economy will look like. We don't know what our political landscape will look like. We don't know what our national health will look like. We don't know anything. We try so hard to know. And where does it get us? But what do we know? We know the gospel. We know the gospel. We know the greatest need of the world that we live in. We also know that we're surrounded by people who are very keenly aware, many for the first time in a long time, of their need. Many of them find themselves today in the exact place we were when God wiped the scales off our eyes. You see, because that's what the gospel does. It works first in us, and then it works through us. But then it keeps moving, see? Then the gospel advances our confidence. The gospel builds momentum. As it begins to move, it doesn't just stay static. It builds as it goes. Look at verse 14. Then Paul says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see that? So what's happened is, is that through the chaos, through the suffering, through the hardship, through the perplexity of the situation, now, isn't this the example we always see in Scripture? That the example of a few can embolden the many? Isn't this how this works? That one begins to embolden others. See, one disciple makes a disciple who then makes a disciple who then makes a disciple. And then here's what happens. Momentum begins to build. But if you're, if you're, if you're aware of this, sensitive to this, You're frustrated because I'm frustrated. 
is you know what I see? In the church today, I see little pockets of momentum. Little tributaries of momentum branching off of a giant river. of confusion and apathy. See, why, why does the gospel lack the momentum today that it ought to have? I thought a lot about this. Why? What is the one thing that I would drill down to? What's the whole, What's the problem? How can the table be this set? Like if there's ever been a lob for the gospel for you to hit it out of the park, it's right now. The church ought to be soaring. And it's limping. The American church is limping. We're getting left in the dust by the global church. You look around the world at what's going on. Where are we? What's the problem? I think that what we need is a Copernican revolution. This is what I mean. You know, remember when you were in school, you learned about Nicholas Copernicus, 1543. He introduces this radical, unheard of idea in a world that has, up until this time, universally, unquestionably believed that all the planets in the solar system revolved around Earth, which would only make sense because we're here, right? And looking up, it appears to be that way. And no one had ever questioned that. No one would even think about it. And Copernicus comes along and says, no, in fact, that's not how this is working at all. In fact, all the planets in the solar system revolve around the sun. Now, am I the only one that thinks it's interesting that we call the planet, that all the planets circle around the sun? But we do. And so it circles the sun. And he comes along and brings this earth-shattering information to a world that was not ready to receive it. See, a world, most people today, especially in the church, live in a pre-Copernicus understanding. They still think the world revolves around them. They still think that they're at the center And let me tell you something about that. That thinking will kill you. It will 100% kill you. It will either be a fast, swift death or a slow, drawn-out, grueling death. But either way, it will 100% of the time lead to death. And here's why. Because there can never be an abundant life with us at the center. Never. We were not designed to be the sun. You see, if, if you rearrange the planets in the solar system, it's over. We all die and everything's done. It won't work that way because it wasn't designed to work that way. Any more than you can rearrange the way you exist in this solar system is if everything revolves around you. It can't work that way because it wasn't made to work that way. You and me were never designed to be the sun. We were designed to be the moon. The moon's job is to perfectly reflect the sun. We should be the reflection of the sun to everyone that we come in contact with because we're following him so we look like him. So when people come in contact with us, what do they see? Him. That's what we've been created to do. The reason the gospel lacks momentum in so many areas of Christianity is because 
They got the solar system all twisted around. They still think that everything revolves around them. Listen. God has you in this moment, this morning. He has you in the exact place, in the exact situation, in the exact circumstances that he not only always knew that you would be in, but in those circumstances, there's opportunity for you. Think about the accusation that your heart has to make. Think about the war that your heart has to declare on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God for you to come to the place where you say to yourself that God, my good, good Father, has me in a place today that He didn't know I'd be in or didn't expect for me to be in, and beyond that, that there's no opportunity for me as his son to point people to him. You can't know God and say that. And yet we do it every day. Every day. Only the gospel can free us from self-exaltation. See, only the gospel can, can get us out of this insanity that it's all about us. There's the great Paul. There he is, sitting there, shackled, bound up. All of his, think about this. What choices does he have? He can't choose where he's going to go. He can't choose who he's going to be around. He can't choose when to go to bed, when to wake up, when to, what to eat. What. But he does have one choice. He has one choice. What's he going to talk about? That's the choice he has. These things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. You know what makes Paul great? His greatness comes from his secondness. Yes, that has a red squiggly line under it, of course. His secondness. See, Paul, you can wrap all of his, everything about Paul that makes him great, it all stems from the fact that he's not the center. He fully understands the concept of not being the center better than anyone that I've ever known or seen or heard communicate. That's where his greatness comes from. Watch how he explains this. You see, he shows us how the gospel advances in us first, and then it goes through us to others, and how it advances our confidence. It builds momentum. As it goes through us to others, there's momentum built. But watch what he does. Look at, look at this, number four. The gospel advances over our motive. Over our motive. Now, watch how Paul drives this point home in a way that's so unexpected. So countercultural. Look at verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerity, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the later, out of love, 
knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So Paul points out that there's people that are preaching. Now, he's gone from Philippi. It's left a void in the church. Now, he set up leaders there. We know that because he said hello to him in the opening of the letter. But there are people that have risen up and started preaching and teaching. And some of them do it out of love, but some of them do it for wrong motivation. See, some of them, he says, do that to add to his affliction. They're saying, well, Paul's not the real deal because if he was the real deal, he wouldn't be in prison. You see, he, if, if he really walked with God, if he really did the things he's supposed to do, then he wouldn't be in the situation he's in. And so they were, maybe they were using Paul, putting Paul down to elevate themselves. Maybe they were preaching the gospel for the motivation of making themselves look good or trying to achieve some position or some notoriety. But look at verse 18. So what is Paul going to do in response to all of this? You see where he begins, he says, well, what then, question mark? See, in the Greek, that's, that's, that's Paul. He's saying, what's up? What's up with that? What do you think about that? What do you think I'm going to say about that? What do you? And the, the tension here would be that what we would do, we'd rise up and we'd defend ourselves and discredit our enemies. But Paul says only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Now let me tell you what Paul just said. Because this is a very, very countercultural message. Paul just said, praise God. The gospel is being preached even by those who have wrong motivations. Because let me tell you something about the Bible. What the Bible teaches is that wrong gospel, disaster. Wrong motive, right gospel, praise God. See, Paul said if you, if you preach the wrong gospel, you go to hell. That's what he said. But if you preach the gospel of Christ with the wrong motive... Praise God, because the gospel is so powerful, it'll rise above your motive. Now, I want you to think about what this means for me and you, okay? Because you're thinking to yourself, now, well, what, well, how does this help us understand? Oh, this helps us understand. What if you, what if you decided... This month you said, you know, I, I'm not going to pay my mortgage. I just don't feel right in my heart about it. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't have peace about paying my mortgage this month. So I'm not going to do it. Because I don't want to do it with the wrong heart. Mm -mm. No. Or I don't want to go to work. How many times have you gotten up to go to work? You didn't want to go to work, but you went to work. You don't want to pay your mortgage, but you pay your mortgage. Why do you do that? Why do you pay your mortgage? Because you have a responsibility to pay your mortgage. So even when you don't want to, you pay it because you have a responsibility to do that. See, you don't want to get up and go to work, but you do that because you have a responsibility to take care of people that you love. That's why you do that. And if you think about it thousands of times every month, you do things with the wrong motivation because you feel a responsibility to do that. There's consequences to not doing it, therefore you do it, but you have the wrong motivation. Listen, there. you know what happens to me? There's sometimes I don't want to feed my kids. Nope, don't want to feed them. See, here's what happens. My wife, she leaves me in a jam. That's what she does. She did it to me twice this past week. And so here I am at the house 
with these two little faces looking at me, saying, we're hungry. Now, here's the problem. You're saying, well, y'all don't have food? Well, that's negotiable. We have food technically. But all the food in my house is food that has to be added with other food to make it edible. Like I need single ingredient food. That's what I need. I don't need multi-ingredient. That, that doesn't work for me. So that's the problem. Second of all, I mean, now I could take them to go get something to eat, but I don't want to spend the money. And on top of that, I'm not hungry because I just enjoyed the last thing of ramen noodles, so tone's good. So I don't want to feed you. I don't want to deal with you. So you know what I do? I feed them with the wrong motivation. You know why? Because I have a responsibility to feed them. Now, if I'm honest, I considered feeding them ice cream, except the little one can't keep a secret for nothing. <laughs> and I knew she'd rat me out. So that plan got scratched. I mean, I am resourceful. It just usually comes back to bite me. So you know what we do? We get up and go to work because we have a responsibility. We pay our mortgage because we have a responsibility. We feed our kids because we have a responsibility. Do you have a responsibility before God to share the gospel? Let me ask you this. Are the consequences of you not paying your mortgage, not going to work, and not feeding your kids greater than the consequences of not sharing the gospel? But you do those other things without thinking about it. Why don't you share the gospel? You know what's interesting to me? That in a culture where the gospel has very little momentum. Everywhere I look, there are Christians evangelizing people to their political cause, to their ideological belief system. Oh, we don't have an evangelism problem. That's not the problem. The church is crushing it at evangelizing everybody to get on their candidates' parade and to believe in their ideology and to support their agenda. But where's the gospel? Where's the gospel? Where's the real need? Why are we talk, talk, talking about all the things that will not produce life? They will not save anyone. They will not turn the tide. Listen to what I'm telling you this morning. Your greatest responsibility on this earth and in this life, bar none, is to share the gospel. It is a greater responsibility than to pay your mortgage, than it is to go to work, and than it is to feed your kids. You're going to answer. And if you think, if you think,
that somehow it's all just going to go away because you didn't have the right motive for sharing the gospel. You didn't feel confident. You didn't feel you weren't doing it for the right reasons. You didn't. I'm sorry to tell you the hundreds of thousands of things that you do with the wrong motive will condemn you. They will condemn you. You see, the only thing that you can do to limit the gospel's power in your life is keep quiet. It's the only thing you can do. Because when you share Jesus in your worst moment, the gospel has the power to save lives. Only the gospel has the power unto salvation. And listen, our motivation, our presentation does not hinder or shackle the power of the gospel. Nothing does. Nothing does. Nothing. So as we've sat in here this morning, I just want to awaken you to the reality that in the time that we've been here around the globe on which we live, untold multitudes of people are encountering Jesus through the gospel right now. Right now. Right now, there are people in every culture, on every continent, rich and poor, learned, illiterate, people who live in big cities and people who live in jungles. Young, old, broken, beaten, arrogant, afraid. Every kind of people in every circumstance and situation, they're encountering God through the gospel. And right now, right now, as we speak, there are addicts that are declaring, Jesus found me and set me free. There are people who have languished in loneliness that are saying, Jesus found me. And I'm not alone anymore. There are people who have been stooped in bitterness that are saying, for so long I've lived in a prison of resentment. And Jesus came into my life and taught me what it is to forgive because I've been forgiven. There are people who all their life, they've lived in anxiousness. And they're saying, my life has been up until this point consumed with worry. But Jesus found me, and now I have peace. There are those who have lived their life in self-righteousness and pride. And this morning they're saying, Jesus found me, and he showed me the way of grace. There are people who are at the lowest point of desperation. And this morning they're saying, I was at the end of my rope. And Jesus came there to me. Do you know how all of those people were found by Jesus? Through somebody. Somebody. 
spoke up. Somebody shared the gospel. Somebody told them what he's done in their life. Somebody invited them to church. Somebody invited them over to a Bible study. Somebody, somebody. That's how that happened. And as we, as we leave here this morning, I know that beyond those doors, there is a, an ocean of reasons that are going to try to thwart everything that God has said to you. Every excuse under the sun, every rationality conceivable to man's imagination. But I just want to leave you with one final thought. As you go out into a world plagued with emptiness, everywhere you look, and the God of fullness in your heart, and the hesitation that comes with what to say, how to say it, all these things that really don't matter. I want you to consider the God of the Bible is so great. He's so great that you cannot exaggerate Him. You see, God's the only thing I can't exaggerate because I can exaggerate anything, but not God. I can't make him too big. I can't make him too glorious. I can't make him too amazing because my words can't ascribe to where he is. He's so great. All you have to do is just start talking about how great he is and what he's done. Tell him about his son. Tell him about what he did in your life. Tell him. And you know what? If you don't want to, and you got the wrong attitude, tell him anyway. Don't pay another mortgage payment. Till you tell somebody about Jesus. Go ahead. There won't be a one homeless person in here. Say, God, I won't go to work again until I tell somebody about Jesus. Go ahead. Tell them. You want to get crazy? God, I won't feed my kids one more time till I tell somebody about Jesus. You want to talk about a family evangelism plan? We finna get rolling. Everybody's going to be on that train. Amen? What's it going to take? 